0: Hello and welcome to the Inside Social Work Podcast, where we take a peek behind the scenes into different fields of social work, engage and inspire practitioners, translate research into practice and encourage lifelong learning. I'm your host, Marie Vikarkas. Thank you for listening and I hope you enjoyed today's podcast episode. Welcome to episode two of the Inside Social Work podcast. In today's episode, I interview Grant Holland, the CEO of an innovative employment training program that has helped over 500 people get jobs in the last six years. Grant is a qualified social worker, mental health clinician, clinical family therapist, youth worker, and business mentor. He has held senior roles in foster care, child protection, juvenile justice and various other community welfare roles. In today's episode, we take a look at some of the various roles he's had, how his career led him to establish the Creative Employment Training Program at the Holland Foundation and some of the tips he has for social work students on placement. Thanks for agreeing to have a chat to me.
1: Thank you, Marie, for the opportunity. A
0: little bit about the Holland Foundation.
1: Um, yeah, so um, look, it's a, it's a long journey, but uh, currently um, I run a training program for unemployed. So we run an op shop in Bentley, a bit of a unique op shop, so um, a little bit different, but basing it on, on retail, uh, modern retail principles. And we have up to uh, 60 people at any one time on our program, and we have around eight or nine or even ten per shift, including a training manager. And our goal is to train people in retail and office administration and the broader, uh, I guess, what you would call the social work skills around empowerment, self-esteem, decision-making. We've been open since February 2013, and so it's about six years. And in that time, we've managed to get 506 people jobs. Pretty diverse group, so we have uh, overseas arrivals, refugees. We have long-term, unemployed, work-for-the-dole participants. We have mums coming back to the workforce after having kids. We have a pretty interesting cohort of uni grads now, and, and they're actual uni grads. So these are people who perhaps got sold the dream at university and said, come to our university and you get this degree and you will get a great job wherever. And they're finishing their degrees, and they're spending a year applying for all sorts of jobs, starting high and then going quite low and not getting an interview. And they come to us with, what the heck is going on? We don't don't understand. We've got a degree. But invariably we um, interview them, we have a good look, and their resumes are terrible. Their um, transferable work skills are pretty terrible. Many of them haven't worked um, much at all, uh, if at all. Um, Sometimes some of those people... Um, just have no experience of work and and how to work and interpersonal relationships and, of course, all the other factors that impinge on our lives, you know, domestic violence, abuse, um, all sorts of things that all social workers um, try and assist with and remedy. Um, um, So a really broad group. We have a number of school students who come now. So we have um, high school students. We have even some some primary school students now coming, Grade 6. Some of those probably won't be going on to university study, so they need to learn um, pretty quickly around um, your base end retail, your base end office admin. The unusual thing about our program, because most people, um, when I describe our program, yeah, they get that glazed look in their eye and they go, oh, yeah, an op shop, yeah, okay, we know what that is. And a couple of people stand behind the counter and sell some secondhand pairs of trousers and you know maybe they take out some trash every now and again. Um, what's the wonderful thing about that... that I think about our program is that we're so unique is that our program, so our registered charitable foundation, the Holland Foundation, nothing's off limits. So our group comes in and we have wonderful social work students and some other students from other disciplines come in placement and our group is exposed to every single aspect of running our charity and running the business, so the business of the op shop as well. So they'll do accounts payable, accounts receivable, paying rents, paying electricity. They'll do HR, so they're interviewing new applicants every day, so we replicate the interview process. They'll help with resume um, design, um, so they'll be train-the-trainer model, um, mentoring. We have some business mentors that come in. They'll um, uh, be trained as managers. They'll do stock control, pricing, display, merchandising, uh, planning the roster, um, doing the bank rec, so the bank reconciliations. Um, which includes looking at all the bank statements checking payments checking accounts doing payroll as I said um, and and we know um, these are the things that we know pretty much every other not for profit um, that all do wonderful jobs but that you just couldn 't do it they, they wouldn't it wouldn 't be in their portfolio to allow volunteers or trainees to look at the bank statements of the not for profit and see the payroll I mean there 's only one payroll but um, you know, we understand why that is, but we decided luckily because we're a non-aligned charitable foundation, we've got a really innovative board, we just threw everything up in the air and said, well, what can we do? How can we make this better? How can we make this so meaningful for people who can't get work experience, can't get an interview, can't get a job? And we said, you know what, let's teach them everything. Let's teach them the whole box and dice. So this is probably, um, because it's an interview, one of the few things I don't drag a a volunteer along with. Um, But usually most things, um, if I'm going to a meeting or I'm involved with something, um, they come along and they get to see some pretty high-end stuff. We meet with politicians every now and again and they get to see that process. Um, So, yeah, that's a little bit of the story we're at and there's probably a a big back story about how we got there. But that's where we're at today.
0: So rewinding a, b- a little bit before the Holland Foundation, you're a social worker, a social worker. and family therapist. Yep. How did you end up at the Holland Foundation? What, what are the steps or the, the gaps that you saw in the market or what was your journey into working at or establishing the Holland Foundation op shop?
1: Well, um, probably as unusual as it sounds, frustration. <laughs> Frustration led me to these doors. Um, so, you know, we, you know, I won't bore you with the history of life. So, of course, there's your childhood, your family, your experiences, your, your tragedies and your happy things that have happened in your world that, that shape you and your role models that shape you into working in human services. We all have that. Um, so there's that. <laughs> and that probably discussion is for another, another day. Um, And then I got... um, I I did a... uh, I was pretty transient in my employment as a young person. Um, Tried lots of different things. Um, Wanted to be a motor mechanic. How's that? Loved cars. You know, young boy or racing cars. This would be fantastic. Um, And I got a job as an apprentice mechanic. And uh, I saw all these guys who were all had twisted uh, limbs and, and fingers and broken knuckles and cuts all over them, covered in grease, and it, to each and every single one of them, there was a big mechanic dealership, a big um, car dealership where I got this apprenticeship. And they all said, this is the worst job ever, and they all hated it, and they all had really crappy cars. <laughs> and I thought, well, hang on, this isn't so good. My, my journey was I wanted to work on cars and fix cars and be involved with these things. And then I realised, this, this isn't looking too good. There's these, you know, 60-year-old blokes, and they they got nothing, and they're not happy. Uh, and it started to get me thinking about happiness, and following your passion and um, in some other arenas I was sort of involved with teams and people and sports and other things and so anyway eventually um, after trying a few things I got a job as a clerk of courts and I think that was pretty life changing for me so I saw um, happened to be involved with a number of the courts that were involved with the children's court so I got to see a lot of tragic stories that I guess I hadn't been exposed to and got a real interest in that and through luck, fate, destiny, help with people, end up getting a job um, at Beltara Youth Training Centre. So that's a bit like what Parkville is today. Um, Worked there for a long time. It was very formative, very formative. People look back on those... Times and uh, would, would, would say, you know, all the youth officers in there were all thugs and it was a terrible system. And, yes, there were terrible elements and there were some thugs, but there was a core group of small people who were trying to buckle that system and make it humane and do innovative things like, instead of buying cigarettes with the kids' pocket money, would say, let's take them to Vic Market and teach them how to buy uh, some food and let's teach them how to cook it.
0: So for our international yeah. listeners... Can you explain to me the model of Parkville or what
1: you are saying? Yeah, so Parkville and um, Beltara were, um, in those days, youth training centres. So for young people, um, yeah, on remand, but in those days, which they don't do now, they're all mixed up. So kids who were being abused at home, couldn't live at home, were thrown in with kids who were, I worked with kids who were up on murder, age 14, 15, 16 um, and younger. Really formative in terms of human dynamics, relationships, um, understanding the background of, of disadvantaged families. It was phenomenal, and it certainly sparked my um, my view as to wanting to change the system. Which, of course, not all, but most social most social workers want to do. They want to change the system. Um, So, you know, you're young and stupid, naive, and you you tackle that system head on like a a bullet at a gate, you know, know, try and smash down doors and upset the apple cart. And then when you get a little bit wiser, you start to realise that all that did is the the people who wanted to keep the status quo were quite powerful. So there were a lot of wonderful techniques that they had um, to keep you down, to stop you changing things like going to the Vic market and buying fresh food and which was a great idea um, so you know I went through working every Christmas day for many years because that's the roster I got for being someone that wanted to back the system um, but worked with a lot of great people and, um, uh, and it really shaped my life at that point I then realised, so again, an epiphany, without a um, a proper university qualification, um, I was never going to be able to buck any system. I would be kept at the bottom of the the pile. I would have no influence and that would really frustrate me. So um, fortunately, um, there was an opportunity as a mature age student to go back to university. Studied social work. Um, It was a wonderful time. I'm so glad I went to social work. I looked at psychology um, in fact, I did some psychology um, units and just thought I found it too diagnostic for me. Um, social work was like this big uh, ocean that you could swim in all these different areas and understand all these different things, and it was amazing. Um, and it allowed you to um, perceive things in different ways and compare and contrast how you wanted to see the world. Um, so it's, that that was a wonderful journey. Um, That continued with family therapy afterwards about that journey of wanting to think about systems and and interactions between people and understanding people and how to assess and how to intervene. Um, So I ended up doing that. Worked in all sorts of places. Worked in foster care. Again, another great journey. Uh, Very formative. um, Wonderful times and sad times. Um, Worked for um, government departments. Again, wonderful times, sad times. Um, And then over the years... Uh, as as I got older, um, I don't know. Maybe maybe when you get older, maybe it's just me. You just don't have as much patience for you know bang, trying to bang that door down, and you want big change. And sometimes I think if you're lucky, you're armed with a little bit of knowledge—not just your own, but people that have fed you and helped you and taught you, and and people that you've admired and uh, run into, and you start to get this toolbox and you go well some of this is okay how do, how do I get this toolbox out there and of course there's all the doors are shut and it's really hard and the system status quo you've got to keep it how it is you can only do little chip, chips away so through circumstances which is basically uh, um, uh, well I won't go into it too much but <laughs> through circumstances where I left one role uh, which funnily enough was was a dream role that I'd wanted for so long so which was a CEO, CEO role at a at a not for profit, and from young from a young age, I thought, well, if I get to a CEO of a place, that's going to that's going to be it. I can help change all these things, and we can, you have a bit of power to implement things, and and you know put some things in a model that's really going to work. Um, and funnily enough, I, you know, I've eventually landed that role, and um, and it wasn't like that. There was. Um, I've worked with some wonderful boards of management um, and I've worked with some terrible boards of management. I've worked with mixed groups and, you know, for a range of reasons we had a really tough uh, committee, committee of management. Um, Not Holland Foundation, this is another place. And um, there are all sorts of agendas going on around politics and power and making a name and wanting ambition for using this not-for-profit as a vehicle for other things that they wanted that weren't so, uh, I guess, human services aligned. Well, and and the organisation, okay, we all have different values and you accept them and you work with them and usually you can come to some agreement, but there were some big things going on. So um, that that was a really sad time. That was really um, probably one of the times that um, I got a better understanding of... Of I guess some of the people that I would worked with over the years, so, you know, perhaps for people that had been made redundant in their job, and would come and would be absolutely distraught, lose all their self-esteem, wondered where they were going, um, and and uh, so I had something. You know, I'd work with those people, but of course you never know a circumstance, and each circumstance is is its own its own unique thoughts and feelings and how you perceive it. So yeah, so I copped it. <laughs> I got it, and uh, and it got me. Uh, so that was a really that was a real struggling time, a real fork in the road moment. But the good news is, at that point where you're starting to go, well, wh- wh- what do I do now? You know, do I just go back and find another place that's a bit nicer, and, and you know, the board's a bit kinder to, to, to the organisation and the people that work in it, and the customers and the clients. Um, and I thought, you know what, um, I've always had in the back of my mind just starting up my own thing, you know, to get away from all these dramas and a, and a bit of freedom to, you know, to let's implement something really creative that you know you couldn't do anywhere else. They wouldn't let you do it anywhere else. Um, so that's how the Holland Foundation started. We used to get... Um, so in, backtracking again a little bit, in all my work life, um, so a long, long time ago, I'd started up a charitable foundation um, to honor my grandparents and the, and like the work they did with um, some Gallipoli uh, veterans and World War I veterans, and that was just to retain some honor their, their memory. They did a lot of stuff, um, and of course, my grandma never got recognized because she was a woman. My grandpa got all the, all the credit, but that 's not how it was. Um, so I started that up and always did that in conjunction with my paid work, very tiresome, very um, uh, consumed a lot of effort and resources. Um, but loved it because, you know, all volunteers, unpaid, did amazing things. We just went out and did stuff. So one of the things that we used to do um, in amongst a whole lot of other things was um, material aid donations. So we'd get companies, businesses, friends, people donating stuff and they'd ring us up and say, we've, we've just cleaned out our office, we're getting new computers, these computers are only two years old, they're fantastic, can you do anything with them? So I'd organise some friends to come on a weekend, to you know, with a trailer, we'd pick up all these computers, we'd organise a school, a disadvantaged school, a community school or a not-for-profit program, we'd deliver them all, set them up and it was wonderful. But sometimes we've got offers of, say, someone might say, look, we're, you know, my grandma died, she's got all these antique dinner sets, they're ancient... English beautiful ones worth $1,000, do um, you want them? And we'd say, oh, look, thank you, but, you know, we we can't really do much with that. We can't give, you know, Antique dinner set to a homeless person in the city. That's not going to work. So at that time when the, uh, I guess, the uh, life-changing job role for me happened, <laughs> uh, or non-job role, um, is we thought, um, and I thought, and our board thought, uh, you know what? If we started an op shop, we could um, use that model where they're using cafes. Um, There's a few cafes going around, so we we don't want to step on that turf. Uh, An op shop would really be good because the customers would be a little bit more lenient with the slowness of the cash register and perhaps the fumbling of our our new volunteers. So that would work. It would be a really good training program, less pressure. Um, The donations we're going to get, because we get them anyway, and the donations we reject... We can now accept and sell them in the store and use the money to pay the rent. So, for example, our rent at the moment is forty two thousand a year. It's a lot of money, um, and we can use that revenue to fund the rent of the building. Um, and you know what? We we sat around and said, "This is great. This is great." And we even threw it up a bit more and said, "You know what? Why don't we open up the whole thing? Why don't they just run the whole everything, the whole foundation?" And and we just say, "Nothing's off limits. Like nothing." And you know, there's. The questions that come up are always good questions, but what about this and what about privacy and what about... Uh, but, you know, when we actually explored it, we, we, the end result, which isn't very socioworky, was us saying, so what? So what if they see what's in the bank account? Like, what? you know, the big deal about vo- volunteer and training can't do a bank wreck, which is really helpful if you want to learn to work in an office or accounts or something like that. In
0: a really supportive environment with staff who understand that you're here to learn and that's
1: completely yeah yeah. and that well I mean it's wonderful what you just said because that climate of risk now is really interesting because we're we're all risk averse and that has closed off so many options uh, for so many people in, in trying to assist them in life um, so that 's where we are with, with the with the shop we 've been open six years five hundred and six people have got jobs um, it 's really innovative about forty percent of our people still don 't get a job um, We know that what we 've done the analytics with that we know why that is you know levels of commitment um, uh, self assessment of, of job readiness so um, uh, probably um, uh, one of the main things is reliability, consistency. We try and work with that. We made a couple of mistakes early on. We were a little bit too forgiving with the with the time issues that many of our participants had. So you know, turning up late and you know needing to go early. We know in social work people have got lots of issues going on, but we were probably too lenient because what we we're finding is our group would get jobs, and then uh, we'd sort of find out a month later sacked. We go, what happened? You know, you, you're working so good. You really loved it. What went, oh, well, the boss said, you know, I was late every time and I just couldn't get it together. And then we sort of have tightened up a bit on that. So we walk this fine line about teaching real work and um, some flexibility for people who are struggling in how to work.
0: So adding on to the staff training, you also take on social workers in a supervisory role.
1: We'd love them. Cool.
0: So you've got your your, your hands pretty full, yeah. and you do a dual educative role where you teach them how to also support yeah. the workers coming through. Yeah. How do you find that, goes? Because I've seen you in practice where you use those same skills to get people ready for social work roles, where they're looking at the transferable skills, coming in on time, presentation, having difficult conversation, even in communication of, yes, I got your email, um, I'll get back to you and some of those bigger things. Tell me about how your experience has gone with social work students.
1: Well, we love them. Again, they're really diverse, all backgrounds, all all sorts of um, cultures, you know, different skill levels. Um, it's wonderful. I think one of the better things that, that I have learned is that, um, that pre-placement interview is really important. We've had some social work students come, and they've been very polite, but I could sort of see in their eyes, they hated it. It's a very, it's a very dynamic place. It's a shop, you know, it's that com- elements of community development where you're, as a social work student, it's not clinical, you're not sitting behind a desk with your appointment every hour someone comes in for their counselling. You're, you're standing behind a cash register forming a relationship Talking about life and aspirations and dramas and disasters and tragedies, and uh, while you're selling secondhand pairs of pants, and um, and I've seen some social work students come for the pre-interview, and you know we open that door for them, and say you know this is not very clinical. If that's not your thing, that's that's fine. You know the the world's got lots of different things. Social work's got lots of different things. Clinicals great and required. Um, we're not that clinical. And I'm really impressed that um, uh, the social work students generally who just didn't feel right, didn't feel it would be for them, said, no, no, I'm, I, this isn't for me. And I think that's been amazing because what that means is the other ones who've said, this all looks a bit strange and I feel a little bit uncomfortable, And but you know what? I, 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 I want to adapt and I want to try something new and easier. Even if I come out of this saying this is terrible, I never want to work some sort of community development model again, um, that's a good outcome anyway because, you know, your next placement, if it's a second placement or your work, you're going to head towards more clinical. Um, so they've been wonderful. We use the same many of the same skills that we do with the uh, participants um, um, and they've been amazing. They've been um, um, really um, quite uh, empathic to the group. Um, after a while, when they start to get it, like they start to get, um the backgrounds, and I think one of the best things recently for me is one student who who left not so long ago said, You know when I first came, um I just thought you know I knew there'd be a couple of issues, but I just thought these were just sort of unemployed people from different backgrounds and uh that's it and and they said, But you know what i I know everyone's got a story and and they said. You've got a you've got a story. I said, well, yeah, well, I actually I do. Um, and they said, well, I thought some people have a story, and the rest, you know, it's just sort of this surface thing with not much going on. But but so many things happened in that placement that they were able to go down these pathways with the participants that they really got some big stories like they shake your head. Like I just wouldn't have believed that this happened to this per Like, on the surface, they seem like they're functioning quite well, they're OK. I never knew all this stuff happened. And, that, and that's a wonderful thing um, for any social work person to to remember when they're walking down the street or someone's rude to them in the coffee shop or whatever that. Sometimes there's big stories for everyone in the world.
0: And it must be quite humbling because the, the students you have on placement will sometimes be managed day to day by one of the volunteers absolutely so if you've got a team leader for the day yep. they might be telling the social work student what to do or how to help yeah and so they don't have that power dynamic as much of i'm the clinical expert or i'm, I'm the expert in this and you tell me about your life they're working as yep. peers
1: absolutely and so there's
0: a different level of empathy there
1: well and it's and it's that's the culture of the organization so again having every we've i reckon we've had every country i can't think of a country we haven't had uh, and it's amazing. We've had the um, Sunni and Shia Muslim ladies working together. You know, obviously we asked them. And um, there are some parts of the world that uh, putting Sunni and Shia Muslim people together in you know, a work thing isn't going to work. <laughs> um, and, it, and, it, and they weren't best friends, but they were respectful because that place, our place is a place of respect, where you're from, who you are, skill level, no skill level, age, doesn't matter. Um, and, and, you know, it's great and uh, um, we'll often talk with the social work students about our allocations and our matching and it's wonderful because, you know, sometimes I we go, well, why don't we get um, the young, you know, we might have a young person there, you know, 19-year-old female perhaps, lacking a bit of self-esteem, a bit of communication, and we might be able to support them with a mentor for them to be the manager or acting team leader with support um, for the afternoon, just a trial about how to learn to delegate. It doesn't have to be perfect, that's okay, they can make mistakes. But, um, and they might have to be telling a fifty-five-year-old um, person, perhaps of a certain culture that may might, might have a caste system still sitting in the back of their mind, um, and telling this fifty-year-old guy, fifty-five-year-old guy, how to vacuum the floor, <laughs> or send him back to say, "Oh, I think you did. How did you go? Did you miss a little bit of stuff in the corner?" And you can almost see like the fifty-five-year-old guy with their new like struggle with, "I've got this nineteen-year-old girl telling me to vacuum. This is." It wouldn't outrageous. happen in my country. Yeah, this is outrageous. <laughs> this is what's going on here. Um, but after a while, they get it, and it's very empowering for everyone, even the 55-year-old guy who has to realise in Australian work culture, um, you know, it's about respect and tolerance. It's not about caste or age, and because you're 55, you don't have to have a vacuum the the floor. You know, you have to get the, the people that you feel are lower than you to vacuum for because it's a crap job. Oh, it's not about that. Um, so it's empowering for everyone um, because some of those people, particularly overseas arrival people, this Australian work culture is very different. How it works, how it operates, how you communicate, you know, who, who helps who, who supports who, who directs who. Um, how do you do that respectfully? How do you challenge if a task isn't done well? So our group's usually pretty poor in communication, assertiveness, um, not just in work because all this is transferable to life. Um, so, you know, yeah, so that's where we're at with, with that.
0: So having so many students come through Holland Foundation, what are some of the, the tips that you could, you know, if we had all social work students listening out to the podcast, yep. what are some tips that you could, um, you could give to them about getting ready for one of their placements in general? So some of the things that you've noticed, yep. um, for okay. those who've been quite successful or really embraced it. Yeah.
1: Um, Well, I'd say follow Marie's podcast because they're, for a start, they should all be listening to it because they're so good. (laughs) No, I'm being a bit flippant, but you know what, you do. um, If you're really moving through life, you can really um, sometimes pick up some wonderful things from people. Um, and usually like some pretty wise people that I've run into in life, they're not shouting from the rooftops, they're not putting banners up, hey, you've got to follow my advice, but if you actually just sit back sometimes and listen and watch, you can get some great tips and there's some wonderful, you know, Dorothy Scott, um, Melbourne Uni, um, guru, uh, you know, I've met some wonderful, um, social work people in my life and I've watched them, I've observed them. Um, I, you know, I've I pinched things off them. <laughs> um, so for social work students, uh, certainly in terms of placement, go and have a good look. Again, everything I do in the shop, you know, it's, it's, I'm learning these days, it's just so transferable. I say that to our group. If you're going to go, they say, well, what, do I, what do I wear for a job interview? And we say, well, if your job interview's on Friday, go in Thursday, sit outside the office and watch what they're wearing. Try and fit your culture. That will help you. If if guys are wearing ties, okay, wear a tie. If the guys aren't wearing ties, don't wear ties. If the girls are wearing these black outfits and that seems to be the culture of that business, go and wear black. Wear your black stuff. Um, So in in terms of placement, have a really good look. Uh, I know sometimes the stress of life, you just want to get your placement. I just want to go close. I want to get somewhere. Um, Yeah, and you might get it done, but you won't be happy. Um, and it'll be a bit of a drudge getting through and your assignments will be a drudge and everything will be a drudge. So if you can do a bit of homework about where your heart lies and and what you want to touch and experience and feel, it's worth the travel.
0: And what about um, tips for getting the most of placement? So whether it's at your your foundation or somewhere else, what are some things that students can do to really get some either greater learning opportunities or put up some barriers of what tasks they can and can do and what they want to do and what to knock back so that they're not just an extra staff member. They're really getting the most out of that learning environment.
1: Well, your field supervisor, every field supervisor, I, I haven't met, I don't know how this works, but I haven't met a dud field supervisor yet, including yourself? Thank you. <laughs> well, I haven't. And, and, you know, I think they're picked for a certain reason. Their, their skills have to be pretty on top because you've got to recognise when students are struggling or these issues. Not every um, placement supervisor is going to be good. There's going to be some that just want students as work work donkeys, so to speak, you know, just want them to do stuff and it helps the load, and that might be the agency view. But most agencies are good. They want the learning. So if you've got a good supervisor, okay, you're in luck and you're going to be okay, and, and communicate, the happy, the sad, don't wait for things to build up, and then hit in the final week that I'm really unhappy and it's been terrible. You know, Talk to them, most are pretty good, but certainly if you get a dud or someone you've tried all your avenues to connect with, to communicate with, but they're, they're not with you, they're just not there, um, use your field supervisor well. They have some wonderful strategies. Um, connect with them, email them, talk to them, as well as your own networks, um, but don't sit in a box being unhappy um, because that's not... Good for anyone, and that's not what you, as a social work student or social worker when you finish, would tell your clients. I don't like using that word, but your if you work in an agency that uses the term clients, you tell them, "Hey, speak up, talk. You know, talk to your partner, talk to your friends, talk to your supervisor, talk to someone about what's going on for you." So, as a social work student, you know, live what you preach. You know, if you're not happy, do it respectfully. Speak up, and you'll be amazed that the um, the changes that can happen.
0: Often I find students struggle to balance that idea of, if I, if I say I'm struggling or if I say I'm finding this really confronting, then I'm going to look like I'm not, I'm not up for the job or that I'm failing somehow. So how do you set boundaries as a supervisor and also encourage students to say, you know, maybe that, that particular issue that that person told me just it really kind of hits a nerve? <laughs> or, you know, I remember my first placement was in child protection and no one ever asked me at the end of the day, was that okay that you just heard those disclosures with all that content? And I'd mm-hmm. go home and I'd be beside myself yeah, without yeah. that outlet to yeah. be told it's okay to actually be confronted by that because yeah. they'd been in the role so long and kind of had found their ways of coping or yeah. blocking that out or compartmentalizing. Yeah. So, what are your advice? What's your advice for both sides?
1: Yeah, well, uh, I my view is that um, we absolutely, so field supervisors, all or most of us, we absolutely underestimate. The impact of coming into placement and dealing with life issues for people has on students. I think, you know, because we're, we're, we're around, you know, a bit like ambulance driver, isn't it? You know, if, if you're seeing a lot of blood and gore every day, OK, you don't get over it, but if you see, you know, perhaps a broken arm, you go, OK, it's just another broken arm, we wrap it up, we take them to hospital and all. I think social work can be a bit like that, you know. Um, if you're being faced with some, what we might call some lower-end human services issues... Um, They might be right high-end for social work students. They might be big deal. They might be traumatic. Um, So we we need a reminder, which you've just done, which is good, um, to consider that, um, to use supervision well and to be able to make sure that supervision isn't just about ticking off boxes about the tasks, but it's also about how are you? How how did you feel? I mean, I'm a bit lucky in that some of the supervision we do, we actually have a, um, a roster and we actually... We go through every person and it's up to the social work student or I might butt in if they miss one, but to say, well, who, who do you want to talk about today? And we'll have, we'll have 60 people um, and we might talk about five um, uh, quite in depth, you know, 15 or 20 just generally. Yeah, they're going okay. They're, you know, this part's happening all right. This part's not so good. We need to work on that. But there might be five we actually have to go in depth about how are you are feeling about her disclosure about what's happening with her husband at home. Um, so that's up to us. Uh, But it's also up to the social work students to use supervision well um, and to use their external, their third parties well, their field supervisor, their their networks, because you can't, can't, none of us can carry it alone.
0: And a final tip for how do you balance the uni workload, the placement workload, the extracurricular stuff and self-care? What have you seen students do either really well... Or where you've seen there's areas to maybe try something different so they can have a bit of breathing space yeah. and not feel like they're kind of languishing or just holding it together?
1: Yeah. Um, um, well, the prioritisation, you know, people are prioritising your tasks. And um, One of the th- things that just pops in my head when you've asked that is, and I, I haven't got the answer yet what that is, but some of our students who are on second placement, they've had a history of perhaps living at home or not living at home, but maybe working part-time or not working part-time, juggling part-time uni. Um, so their, their hours or their um, their workload focus is like burst focus, like, okay, I've got a lecture and I've got a tute and I've got this assignment and then I've got to go to work at Maccas and then I've got a, a couple of hours off and then I'm going to a party. Um, and at the end of placement, they're all most of them are quite keen, right, oh, I really want um, a full-time job and it's not always, but often, it's this Monday to Friday, nine to five, human services job. Um, Well before you start that Monday to Friday, nine to five, you need to start training your body and your mind about if you want to work Monday to Friday, nine to five, how to do that. Because I noticed on placement, we do four days a week. We we make sure that they have a day off midweek, usually Wednesday. Um, Just breaks it up for them, catch up on uni. But... um, I talk to a few after they've started their jobs. Um, yeah, and some of them struggle physically and mentally with this Monday to Friday, this is terrible. <laughs> like, I'm exhausted. Uh, and, you know, I've done it for a zine. I, I did shift work at the youth training centre. That was pretty exhausting. But, um, you know, I've done your Monday to Friday and a bit of helping out on weekends for a long time. You've got to have your life right and your mind right and your whatever you do, your yoga, your, you know, your meals, your food, your... Getting a break during the day. Sometimes here I just go for a walk. You know, I feel I start to get frustrated because it's Groundhog Day with us. You know, we, we teach something, someone gets good at it, they get a job, they leave, and it's like every week and a half someone goes and someone new comes, and it's like after a few years ago, look, I've taught this four million times. Why don't they get it? What's going on? I, I, I taught that. Why well, come, come? They don't know how to use the airfrost machine. When I start feeling that, right, that bubble, I go, Grant, time to go for a walk up the street, look in the shop. You know, I don't drink coffee, but you know, whatever, go and see a shopkeeper that I know, have a talk about footy or something stupid and come back refreshed. So you've got to look after yourself.
0: Good advice. And so we see now, I mean, you've got quite a successful student placement program. You've getting a lot of people employment through the Holland Foundation. What have been some of your setbacks, whether it be in your mindset or fears that you've had yeah. to get to this point? Because often we compare ourselves to people who are already quite successful yeah. and we see what they're doing really well. and. It might hold us back. Like, what? What? Can you share some of your struggles or advice on for people to keep going when they're really passionate about something, or when they're faced with those systemic or bureaucratic challenges?
1: Well, um, you may not realise this, but um, even what you have done today, that gives me uh, an energy boost. Is a really crappy word for what I'm trying to say, but you give me a, a, a boost that will last. To keep going, um, because philosophically we don't spend money on marketing, fundraising, TV radio, all the ones that the big Kahuna not for profits do, uh, not many people hear of us, so in my in my sadder moments when there's a a moment of frustration or something bad happens, I you know you start to wonder, you know what does anyone care? you know do they give you stuff um, in my saner moments where I'm things are going okay i'm, I'm I, I flip towards we're really doing good stuff. That's why five, over 500 people have got a job that would be on Centrelink and costing government millions and their life's pretty good and they're happy and they're, the world's changed. Um, those moments are good because I go, yeah, this is good. But there's other moments things go wrong. So people taking interest, which you have done, um, I'm really chuffed. I'm really pleased that you felt our program's worthy enough to share with some people. Um, so that helps. Um, so I don't know how you engineer to meet nice people in your life, but <laughs> but if you can find ways to meet nice people, that helps. Um, sitting above, when you, if you ever decide to really bash the doors down and run your own charity or really go out there on your own, um, the burden does all sit with you. Um, and you know, funding's a really major issue. The, the, the nature of with the Western world now is funding large corporate, not for profit. You know, well, I understand the economics of that. I get it. Um, so we struggle. We really struggle. You know, every month it's h- how we're going to pay the rent and how we're going to pay the electricity. And how we're going to do this? Um, so we, we do a bit of self fundraising, but it's relatively minor. Um, so you know, you're always looking for the for, for the benefactor. It's not always dollars. Sometimes it's uh, it's in kind. You know, good donators um, of, of goods. You know, that helps us a lot. Um, business mentors or other mentors that come in. We've got uh, some great people at the moment who come in on a Monday morning. We do group interviews every morning uh, and they come in, they're ex-business people, and they are guns. They are right on with the interview questions because our trainees, they're interviewing new applicants. They're learning about how it all works and we do a thing called live feedback which, which again, um, uh, so you, you, when you go for a job interview, people are pretty stony-faced. They ask you the, you know the questions. We know what they are. There's 53 questions in the Western world that they ask or variations of. Companies ask four or five of those. Um, so we do that and we ask permission, if they give permission, to give feedback about what we would think and say about their answers as if they'd gone home and it was a panel just talking about, oh, you know, that lady, she looked pretty grumpy, oh, that guy, he had really funny shoes and she had funny hair and her rings were nice and she'd be nice to work with, all the stuff that you, they can't tell you. And by law, you know, yet they can't tell you. Um, so we, we get that feedback. Um, and so we have some business people, so any any people who are a bit cluey about the world, whether it's HR, interviewing, business, um, social work. You know, we'd love them to be involved.
0: So how can people get involved? What are your contact details?
1: Website, yeah. um, Holland Foundation, just look it up. So hf.org.au, all the numbers there. Um, we'd love a chat to see what you want to do. What's um, on
0: your wish list?
1: Oh, everything. What is Marie, the diverse, everything <laughs> some of the
0: diverse skills? Often people think, okay, financial donation or... Like you said, goods. Yeah, what are yeah. some of the other things that people can do that maybe are a gap or something
1: yeah. you just never thought of? Yep. Yeah. Um. Um. If fundraising, of course, is good, like events and stuff like that. So our group, we teach them how to do that. So our group runs our charity ball, so they learn about event management. It's a big. It's a big do. It's at a yacht club, and there's three hundred people, and music, and raffles, and all sorts of jazz. So they learn to do all that. Um. But so basically, everything we do, they learn. You know. Um. So. Um. Uh, in kind, um, fundraising be great. You know, of course, the, the Holy Grail, which is the the rich multimillionaire, says you're a really good program and, you know, here's, here's a building that we're going to give you so you don't have to pay rent. But that's not going to happen because we're not out there. We're not in the front of the Herald Sun or the Age or the, you know, pe- people don't know us. Um, so maybe marketing, maybe there's some marketing gurus that go, yeah, I reckon we can help you here. Um, but we're open to anything, anything that someone brings up says, I want to come and look at your program, which they should, um, before they offer help to anyone. You go and have a look, immerse yourself. We're not shy, we'll let you in the back room or you can sit in, you can watch what goes on. Um, and then if you think we're okay, um, we'd love to, to chat to you about what you think you could offer. And the the world's your oyster. There's things I wouldn't have even thought of that people, hey, have you thought of doing this? No, I didn't didn't realise that. That's great. So we're open to anything.
0: Wonderful. I'll put those details on the show notes. Thank you. So just uh, last couple of minutes, do a bit of a hot seat round. Um, Just some advice and things for for social workers. So have there been any books or resources that have informed your practice or have been personally inspiring to you?
1: Yeah, well, um, as you know, uh, I really, I really enjoyed it. it. Really made a difference to my practice doing the family therapy on top of my social work. It really honed. Uh, you know, I'm not a member of the um, any particular um, educational institute trying to recruit you to do family therapy, um, but it it really helped. It really gave me a massive insight. I really um, believe family therapy is a really strong adjunct to social work. Um, um, that that's been really helpful. Um, the people that I've met, um, I'm getting better at asking for things. I haven't been good as a social worker. We're usually a little bit humble and I'm a little bit um, uh, selfless. Um, and I've learnt, I'm getting old, I've learnt sometimes you can ask for stuff and people really surprised and go, yeah, okay. And the things that, that I wouldn't have asked, I would have been too shy or too... You can't ask for that. You can't ask someone to donate that or do that. Um, And they actually do, and they actually want to. You know, like, um, think of the charity ball. Um, You know, we do a few things, and we've got some really lovely people that, um, uh, because I asked, i got the courage to ask, and I I wouldn't have, um, some high-end business people who have ocean racing yachts. Long story how I ran across them, but anyway, we did. And I took a risk. So social work, sometimes, you know,
0: Talk about that risk. Well, with, a yeah, with with
1: the confines of safety and balance, I took a risk, and and um, so that not only do they donate um, every year, which is our it's the big ticket item at our charity ball, the big loud auction is this ocean racing for eight people, and they go out on Port Phillip Bay, and you know it's a big fundraiser, it raises that thing raises a lot. Um, not only that, those people organise with some other people, and we just had it a couple of weeks ago. We do a sailing night in February, and our volunteers all come I cook a barbecue, I don't go sailing because I get seasick but um, I cook a barbecue and some other volunteers and mentors cook a barbecue they go out on a face your fears challenge out on these ocean racing yachts on Port Phillip Bay on a, a, uh, what was it this year Tuesday night um, out on Port Phillip Bay from Sandringham Yacht Club it's amazing and that's um, we met some people involved with one of the Lions Clubs Um, they're involved with that, they help organise all that Um, so I reckon when I was younger, there'd be some people and some groups who I might have had a preconceived idea. You know, you're, perhaps I might have thought, you know, these rotary lines, these fuddy-duddy old business people. And, yeah, there might be some fuddy-duddy old business people in them. But in amongst everything, I've met some amazing people. You know, they, they help organise this boat thing. they our group loves. Like, they've never been on a boat ever. This is, like, unbelievable. And to face your fears, they come off and we go, well, if you can do that... You can be team leader next week. You were so scared you didn't want to do it, but look, you've been out on the ocean. You were scared you were going to drown. You've come back, you're alive. Um, so I think, you know, getting back to that, what we first talked about is that there's a lot of things that sit behind people that you just don't realise. Yeah, of course, there's some cruddy, terrible, rotten people in the world. Um, but, you know, some you might think on the surface, you know, they're not good or, you know, okay, you can have, everyone has different values, that's all right. But there's some good people around and if you ask and dig and develop some relationships, even in some areas and some people that are foreign to you and that you go, that's not my thing, it can really make a difference to your world of social work. Um, get out of the bubble a bit because there's uh, some big things outside your bubble.
0: Beautiful. Very well said, Grant. Thank you. Thank you so much for taking the time to have a chat to me about the Holland Foundation and your personal journey and all the little tidbits of advice.
1: Thanks for your opportunity, Maria. I really appreciate it.
0: for listening to today's podcast be sure to check out the show notes for today's episode's resources and don't forget to click subscribe and review us wherever it is you get your podcast